Welcome to the Values Exchange Podcast. I'm Mike Cruz, your host, private pilot, author of Saturday Every Day, and CEO of North Texas Wealth Management, a firm dedicated to values-based financial planning. This podcast uncovers the values and habits of highly successful people and dives into how it has shaped their success and what you can learn from their personal stories. All right, welcome back. Uh, I am so excited today about our guest, uh, the Chief Market Strategist for LPL Financial. Uh, Former positions include the Chief Investment Strategist for the Hartford, Prudential Financial, Global Investment Strategist for um, Deutsche Bank, um, spent time at Credit Suisse and U.S. (laughs) Diplomat Background, um, Assistant Secretary of Commerce, U.S. Representative to the IMF, International Monetary Fund, um, graduated with a master's and a doctorate degree from London School of Economics, uh, frequently in the media. So Dr. Quincy Crosby's here with us, joining us from Virginia. Hi, Quincy. How are you today? Hi, how are you? Thanks for inviting me. I, when I listen to that, I think, oh my, maybe I, I can't keep a job, but it, it, it's all the moves that we made, uh, my husband and the family that, as you know, what happens when you move around the country, so, uh, well, things well, change. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for being here. Well, I, I read it and I was yeah. like, well, what else is left for you to do except be on the Value Exchange <laughs> podcast? So, so I said, you know, we got to get you on here. But uh, no, thank run, you. Run for office. Run for office. That's the only thing left. Um, is that in the cards? Sometimes when I'm speaking, especially if you hit certain uh, targets uh, in the conversation, some people have said, oh, my gosh, is she running for office? And then I feel like, oh, my goodness, do they, do they expect me to, you know, ask for a contributions to the campaign that I and I, there's one topic today that you know which one it is. It's a political one uh, that if you press that button, you'll know what I mean and what the, what your clients mean. All right. Well, I can ask the right questions to get you to run. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I kind of want to just start with big picture and we look at it. Um, yeah. So I always talk about values and we talked about talking about the value of understanding the intersection between markets and the global economy. So no small yeah. topic by any means. And, you know, I wanted to kind of just take a step back and look at like financially, what are the signals that you're looking at that would help us define like, where are we right now? How did we get here? And then, you know, maybe we can pivot into kind of where we're headed. So how do you kind of define well, our current yeah. economy? It, it's so interesting because, you know, having worked on Wall Street, uh, starting on the trading floor environment, you realize that the economy is not the same as the market. Uh, most of us think it's the same. It isn't. Sometimes it, it overlaps. But we always say about the market that the market looks ahead. The market sees things that the economy, the economic data, do not see uh, or does not see because data, by the way, happens to be plural, but everybody thinks it's wrong. But nonetheless, that's the interesting thing. So the market could be looking ahead and saying, wait, we, we see green shoots. We see the economy doing well, pulling out of, of, a, of a, you know, a downturn. And yet you could be mired in very weak economic data, even a recession, and you think, well, the market must be wrong. Normally, the market actually is correct. It moves ahead by three to four months looking ahead. So what got us here is we lived in a period of zero interest rates. Sometimes they were even negative if we factor in inflation. Rates were extremely low, and that's underpins a go-anywhere market. I mean, it, it, it pushes the the housing market because rates are so low, uh, equity markets. And we had that free money from the government during COVID. Both the Democrats and the Republicans put these transfer payments into our accounts. And again, you couple that with rates that just were nothing, uh, you get a market that uh, enjoys taking on risk. Uh, We always would say that risk begets risk begets risk until it doesn't. And then, and then we went through a period in which 
the supply chain challenges were really dramatic. Uh, I, I just used my own experience uh, waiting for a refrigerator for months. Not fancy. Uh, made in America, supposedly, but so many of the parts came from China. And when I finally did get it, it was much more expensive than anything I had ever dreamt about, but I needed it. But that happened to so many of us. And we wound up in a situation in which inflation started to climb higher as prices climbed higher. And then to get workers, particularly as COVID eased, and this is global, by the way, um, it was very difficult to get workers. You had to pay a lot more. And when you pay workers much more than you expected, it is a, an input cost, just the way um, chemicals are an input cost for a manufacturing company. You try to pass along those higher costs to the end buyer, consumers or businesses, and that also pushes up inflation. However, the Federal Reserve looked at these higher prices and thought, okay, it's temporary. It's temporary. The supply chain challenges will ease, prices will come down, and the inflation that we saw would be transitory. That was their word for temporary. And I, I, I remember I, we talked about this, Mike. I looked it up in the dictionary. I thought, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know what the definition is. But it is not a long period of time. The Fed made a mistake in calculating the effect of this inflation on the economy and, and the length of the timing of inflation. So when they did get started, which was a year ago in March, albeit not very aggressively, the market suddenly went from easy money to now tightening. We went from loose conditions to going cold turkey. That was difficult for the market, for the bond market, difficult for businesses to, to try to figure out what, what the Fed was going to do. Now, keep in mind also, the Fed went from one quarter of 1% to half a percent, right? We could live with that, to suddenly going to nearly 1%. And that was three quarters of 1%. That move was aggressive. This has been one of the most aggressive rate hike campaigns in modern history. And what it did was it jolted all of us. It jolted all of us because the Fed's goal was to dampen, dampen inflation by dampening consumer demand. We, the consumer in our country, is, we're 70% of the economy. And it all stems from a healthy, resilient labor market. So where we are now is the Fed meets this week. The market is hoping that this is what they call a one and done, that the Fed finishes. The Fed says it's pausing, but basically it's telling the market they're done. This is what the market is hoping for. And the market is actually, there's something called a futures market, is looking at rate cuts beginning in November. Now, the futures market is not necessarily correct, but very often it kind of nails it because it's an ongoing, it's fluid. It brings in all of the information it has and it tends to make a decision. So that decision right now is that tomorrow, when, um, the 3rd of May, we do get a one quarter of a percent rate hike. The question for the market is not that, it's how does the Federal Reserve package it? Do they make it that this is it, this is it? Or do they signal somehow that the Fed is still watching inflation? We don't know, perhaps they don't know. But one of the things that they're looking at is a still strong labor market and when we look at manufacturing in this country, which, by the way, is much smaller as a component to our economy than it was, say, in the 1960s. It's only about 8% now, but it's still important. But what we're seeing is that the prices that are paid in the manufacturing sector in our country, those prices are going up, not down. And still, manufacturing is mired in a downturn. So it's kind of stagnant at this point. 
but yet the prices are climbing higher. That is not what the Federal Reserve wants to see. Right. So for the average investor, when they hear you say, say that, um, there's, there's so many things, and just kind of talking about where we are currently, there's so many things that I think investors are concerned about. And so, you know, we've had the regional banks, we talk about, you know, inflation and whether or not that's being curbed or not. Um, kind of depends on the data that you look at. Some of the housing data suggests otherwise, but we know that data tends to lag. And then we yeah. start going from, you know, concerned about the banks. I want to see if you could address that. And maybe we can also mm -hmm. talk about, you know, what we don't want to talk about, which is the debt ceiling. But um, Oh, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Press the button. Right, you'll right. Have to have, you'll, you'll have to say goodbye early. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, well, absolutely. I mean, because if you look at the market right now as we're doing this call, home builders are doing very well. Why would that be? Well, part of it is that we're still seeing people buying houses. Mortgage rates may be up, but the home builders are trying to not, you know, to work with potential buyers. Uh, and at some point, obviously, they know that the Fed rate hike cycle is going to end. If it isn't tomorrow, uh, it could be perhaps even in June. So that's the market looking ahead. But the other part of the story is the banks. Uh, yesterday, uh, we had good news. That was Monday, May 1st, early in the morning, that JP Morgan uh, was going to take over uh, or buy the uh, most of the assets. In essence, First Republic, which would represent the second largest collapse uh, in, in, in banking, modern banking history, after Washington Mutual, which was the, fir the first, the largest, this would be the second largest uh, First Republic. But the market's view seems to be at this point that that has been contained now, that now it's been contained, that we don't really have to worry about any systemic risk spreading into the uh, banking system. The other part of the analysis of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and what happened with First Republic Bank is that very poor risk management. In fact, no risk management. And also that we had a failure from the regulatory system. And that would have come out of the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. They have regulators, they, they are supposed to monitor the banks in their region, in the territory. And uh, the job they did was obviously not good enough at all. Chairman of the Federal Reserve Powell made a comment at the press conference uh, following the last Federal Reserve meeting in March. And he said, regarding Silicon Valley Bank, he said there were lots of red flags but we don't know where they went. They didn't come to Washington. And you're listening to this and you're saying, what? what? What did you just say? There was a failure, a complete failure. The supervisors responsible for examining these banks just did not do their job. And you couple that with the bank's own lack of responsibility, lack of risk control, you see what happens. So we're glad that JP Morgan Chase took over that because JP Morgan has an excellent reputation. They will do well with this. The only concern right now in the banking system, it seems to have, how shall I say, been contained, hopefully. However, the market isn't worried about real estate, commercial real estate, where across the country, small and mid-sized banks really are the, the bankers for much of the commercial real estate market. And the question there is, what is happening, particularly in the larger uh, cities where the buildings are not occupied, folks are not coming back to work uh, five days a week, so there, there's you know, quite a bit of, of space available. Not everything can be converted into a uh, you know, condo building, 
the concern is because we're already seeing it late payments from some of the very well-known property developers what happens down the road on a positive note regarding this is that many of the analysts believe that this will not be a climactic hit to the uh, banks as as the loans are uh, in delinquency that it will be in stages so that it won't cause anything dramatic to happen such as what happened with first republic bank and silicon valley bank but it's definitely in the offing it's definitely in the cards particularly particularly if interest rates go up even more than where we expect uh this week so um no that's that's great so and then you know the debt ceiling so average investors looking at the news we're talking about the banks we're worried about the economy and then now uh, the debt ceiling uh, comes into focus. You know, what happens? Can you kind of play that out if the, you know, politics take over and, you know, we have a default? What, is, what, does, that, what does that mean for investors? It's not good. It's not good. It, it is not good. Simply, it's not good. And the concern here is that for both parties the extremes on in both parties are this is just a concern i don't want to say it's going to happen but it's a concern that they are so adamant and so frozen in their positions that they would be willing to allow the debt ceiling to just go over the cliff and allow the ramifications that would ensue. That's the concern. The concern is that the middle of both parties will not be able to keep these extremes at bay. Needless to say, there is no doubt that there needs to be budget cuts. Budget cut, uh, the, the budget is overwhelming. The budget has been band-aided, if you will. It's had a band-aid uh, uh, fix all these years. We don't have enough people coming into the workforce to pay some of these, uh, these uh, expenses throughout the system. So things must be done, but it's very difficult for politicians to do it because it's unpopular. It's extremely unpopular, but it has to be done. And, you know, we all know, I don't have to name the, the, the um, outlays that the average American works for and pays towards. But there is so much fat within the overall budget that it really has. It, 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 if we don't do it now, what we're passing along to future generations is an era of taxes, taxes, taxes that will have to be paid to take care of it. That's not fair, it's not right. And it creates an economy that is ballooned and that just simply can't function. Right, and you know, especially with interest rates increasing, doesn't that just make that problem worse? And so do you see their actions ultimately might be taken to lower interest rates just because we can't afford to not, not make that happen? You know, Mike, it's very interesting that you say that because when the Federal Reserve buys bonds, treasury bonds, it lowers the interest rates, does it not? That's the whole point of it. Right. Many people believe that it was in 2009 when this quantitative easing started, this tool that the Federal Reserve has and used at that time to bring down rates to try to stimulate the economy. However, actually, the Federal Reserve bought bonds toward the end of World War II, and it lasted for a number of years. Why? To do what you just said, to lower, lower the cost of what it cost in the war to pay it back. That's exactly what they did. And so that is an issue as the rates go up. Uh, I, I will tell you that, again, part of this battle is that there are extremes 
in one of the parties, I, will, I don't want to get political, that believes that's exactly what the Federal Reserve should do. Go in and keep buying bonds and, and perpetuate it so that you can have anything you want in the budget. Anything, just whatever it is, you put it in there, have it done, and just have the Fed keep going in and buying bonds and buying bonds. There's a, that's a theory. Uh, and sometimes you wonder if, that, if that's exactly what's happening. I don't think so. But we're moving in that direction because, because of this inability to sit down and do what we need for our country. The two parties, I believe, at, at the core of both parties want to get it done, want to get it done. They know they need it. But here's the other political gist of it is it appears just from my reading of it and talking to people whom I have worked with in the past in the government, that each side believes these are the fringes who are recalcitrant, believe that they won't be blamed, that the other side will be blamed, and it'll become a political plus during an election period. When you talk like that or even think like that, you're hurting all of us. You're hurting the American people who put you in, in the office to look after us, to look after people who have worked all their lives to retire with dignity and just say, well, you're just a pawn in a bigger game, a bigger political tug of war. That's wrong. It's not right. Exactly. I, would, I agree that <clears throat> you shouldn't even... Uh... The talk of the uh, the debt ceiling, you know, we've raised the debt over a hundred times. That shouldn't be a, a political pawn, right? So right. looking at, um, you know, what's going on domestically, but we're raising rates. I mean, we're not the only ones, right? This is happening globally. So can you talk about kind of the global exposure in portfolios? Is that important? Is that uh, something that safeguards? Um, how do you see that kind of playing out? Well, you know, it's always very helpful. Uh, many people do it many different ways. We have so many companies in the United States, the big multinationals, the big tech names, for example, that have global a global footprint. Many people go that way. Uh, Starbucks, I'll give you one example. Starbucks um, is reporting I, this week. Uh, they have a major footprint in China. So that's another way people actually actually invest. Also, uh, China is major. It's the world's second largest economy. It has just come out of almost two and a half years of being locked down because of very strict COVID requirements. They're, they're, this is the uh, rebuilding, if you will, of China. Well, it's interesting because as they opened the economy, uh, it's initially being predicated on consumer spending. And ironically, it's no different than Americans coming out of COVID, Europeans. But here's the interesting thing. The Chinese have been traveling primarily domestically. Some have been going overseas, but uh, in the cities in China, they are luxury goods stores, uh, famous names out of Paris. Well, LVMH, which is Louis, Louis Vuitton, came out with their earnings, uh, it's Paris-based, came out with their earnings just um, a couple of weeks ago, and it's the best they've had. And they said, thanks to the Chinese consumer buying our goods. And they said, uh, the US consumer buying less, but more than made up for by the Chinese consumer. So my point here is the global economy exists there are many ways to access it. Emerging markets are extremely popular in portfolios. However, we believe in active management uh, because, because what active management does in emerging markets is they understand the local economies. They know what is working. They, they know the economies where you see the beginning of a middle class, where the companies are focused domestically. But the other part is emerging markets, for example, they need to have a weaker U.S. dollar. And as the dollar weakens, because as you point out, we're finishing up a rate hike campaign, 
but that will weaken the dollar, will continue to weaken and soften the dollar. It's good for our multinationals, but it's very good for global financial conditions. For emerging markets, it's excellent. Uh, they import quite a bit of oil, priced in US dollars, it becomes less expensive. They have dollar-denominated sovereign debt, dollar-denominated commercial debt, then it's easier to uh, service that debt. And the other part of, of the story is that because financial conditions ease quite a bit with a weaker dollar, it makes global trade uh, more attractive. So I'm not suggesting that, that we go into emerging markets now, but I wanted to explain why emerging markets tend to do worse when the dollar is very strong. But we're in a period right now where the dollar is easing and easing actually quite markedly. So when the Fed is finished, you'll see Europe probably still has some more rate hikes to go. The Bank of England, we know, is prepared to raise rates more to quell inflation. So if you were going to create a scoreboard for the current economy, um, you know, we have 100 factors we look at. I was just, if you were going to limit that down to like a dashboard of like five key, you know, metrics, what, what are you watching? What, what's really important right now? Labor, the labor market. And the reason for that is when we look at the path to a recession, a normal recession, right? Not, not where we're hit with a pandemic or, or, or some shock to the system. But typically it begins when we listen to companies, which we're doing now, we are in the earnings season and the guidance is very important. And what we listen for is they're about their margins. How much do they have left after paying all the costs associated with running a business? What's left? We call it their margins, their operating margins. The reason I mention this is the more revenue growth slows, meaning how much comes in, the more they're paying in terms of wages or any other input costs, the more pressure on those margins to come up with an attractive bottom line. What do they do? They will cost cut, and that includes layoffs. So the more layoffs that we have, Obviously, that starts building the unemployment rate. When that happens, then we then see consumer spending, which is 70% of our economy, slows down. You do that long enough for a month or two, you're in a recession. And so we look at what companies are saying, but then we translate it into how strong is the labor market. As long as people have jobs, they people are going to spend. And the labor market has been extremely strong and resilient. So this Friday, we're going to have the payroll report. And what are we looking for? Wages. Have wages gone up too much? Because we know that the Federal Reserve, particularly the chairman, Jerome Powell, is focused on that because remember, just as we said, the more that wages go up, the more companies are going to have to pass along those higher wages to the consumer, you know, to businesses that buy the, the products. That's, that's inflationary. So we'll look for that. We're also going to be paying very close attention and the overall uh, scheme is what do individuals average Americans see in terms of inflation. The reason this is important is that the Federal Reserve does not want to see Americans seeing inflation rise too much over the course of a year or three years. Because if that happens, what they're worried about is that it becomes entrenched. And when something becomes entrenched, it starts to be difficult to unwind it. And I'm sorry to say that Americans looking ahead over, over one year are seeing inflation rise to about 3%. The Fed doesn't want to see that. So the other thing we look at because of this, we know that when gasoline prices climb higher and every day 
you pass how many filling stations does somebody pass in one day? A lot. And believe it or not, when the prices keep going up, even a little bit, very soon afterwards, inflationary expectations rise. When gasoline prices come down, inflationary expectations come down. So that's important as well. Very good. Now, when we look at the Fed, um, coming out of the pandemic, there's kind of this mentality of whatever it takes to kind of get the economy back going again. Um, yeah. How much of that mindset's now carrying over to inflation? And if we look at it, they really only have two mandates, which is full employment and then, you know, to curb inflation. So yeah. are you concerned that, you know, instead of in June when rates potentially are, you know, peaking, that they might look at this and say, hey, the labor market's fine. Let's just keep pushing. We're only focused on inflation until, until maybe they push it too far. Where's that tipping point? Well, that's the concern really right now, right now. I mean, and is, there's an open debate actually at the Fed. Uh, many of the presidents of federal banks around the country are talking about it. Why, why this obsession about, about wages? Why this obsession about labor so much? Aren't you afraid to keep tightening and then just push us directly into a recession? The reason it's important for the Fed is they go back in history. Chairman Powell has mentioned it many times. They don't want to repeat the mistakes of the 1970s. Back then, the head of the Federal Reserve raised rates, stopped, raised rates again, stopped, and allowed stagflation to take hold. Stagflation is pernicious. It is when you have no growth, but you have high inflation. Paul Volcker inherited that. And for those who remember, uh, he pushed the rates up. Rates went up to 20% in order to kill inflation. Uh, he put the economy into a recession. The man was despised. He hurt the unions uh, because he basically made it so difficult for them to get raises that that you know that there were concerns about about you know throughout the country whether or not he was going to be safe uh you talk about the housing market i'll give you a little anecdote my husband and i bought a house back in the early 1980s and uh the uh i think the rate was maybe 14 percent the mortgage rate people thought how lucky we were because it was so low try to imagine that now and so Powell is worried that because there are, how do I say this, scintilla, a slight, slight film of stagflation in, in the inflation uh, backdrop, he doesn't want that to spread. And I think he doesn't want to give up tightening because you, I believe it or not, because in many ways he has the luxury of a still strong labor market. And he knows that a recession hits when the labor market is really weak and is continuing to be. That's why this report is going to be important. We want to see on Friday how many jobs were created. Right now, they're still, it's still healthy. But if we start seeing that number come down in new jobs not being created, but, but, you know, they're lower and lower and lower. You know that we're headed towards a major slowdown, if not a, a recession. And, you know, kind of to, to go back to markets and the economy are quite different. And I think, you know, the question back in investors' mind is how much is the market already priced in the probability of maybe a slight recession? And potentially we could be going into a recession at the same time the market be, could be starting another bull market, right? anticipating yeah. maybe future market, you know, interest rate declines. Um, what, do, what do you kind of see there? That's, you know, that, that's what makes the market, as, as we like to say, right? Um, that's why the futures market, this is really interesting, what we call the Fed funds futures market, is looking at a rate cut coming in November. Uh, this is, 
when we when we started to see the consumer price index come down, that means showing inflation was finally starting to pull back. This was back in the fall. The rally that we enjoyed was a rally looking ahead with, with a cyclical orientation. In other words, we didn't see consumer staples in that rally. Just all about growth, all about the future. And that has been the hallmark of virtually all of the rallies that the market, because most of the rallies, by the way, have been based on inflation coming down and that the Fed soon finishing the job. However, the recent rallies that we've had have now started to include the defensive side of the equation, consumer staples, utilities, pharmaceuticals. I, it, that's not what you want to see if you are hoping that we are pulling out of this. Now, for the most part, the rallies are still heavily, heavily skewed towards cyclical, meaning getting out of a downturn. I always look at my bellwether happens to be the semiconductor names because they are in everything. The semiconductors are the chips. And many of the analysts have likened them to transports, the way the transportation sector gives us a hint of the future. The more the transports do well, the trucks, the trains, it tells us that goods are being moved across the country. Well, the semiconductors are a picture of global demand. And because everything includes a chip, I actually received a toothbrush that had, had a chip in it. It talked to me. It was kind of scary, but it talked to me. And yeah. it's in every missile system. It's in every vehicle, especially electric vehicles. Uh, it's in artificial intelligence. It's underpinning. It's the infrastructure for artificial intelligence. But the point I want to make is that's what we want to see leading. And it's been, it's been leading because, again, it gives us a picture of global demand. So you ask me, which, which is, which, what is the equity market telling us? It hasn't figured it out yet. As long as I keep seeing utilities in there, as long as I see consumer staples in there, and I see the drug companies in there, it's telling me that investors are not quite sure, that the market is not quite sure. I do believe that by next week, after we get through another round of earnings, including Apple, by the way, the big Apple, uh, we'll hear what they have to say because they've got their finger on the global pulse of demand. But we'll have the Federal Reserve and we will have an all-important payroll report on Friday. We will have the market, I think, making a more definitive decision on which part of the market is winning. Yeah, so so Quincy, for for the investor looking at, you know, what does that mean for my portfolio and the market and kind of just really understanding why, you know, what we try to remind our investors is that, you know, there's there's a lot of different factors. We're looking at not only, you know, economics, that's a key component, we're looking at volatility, but then we go back to key key measures of valuations and growth. What what is, I guess, LPL's approach to what do we see where the market's headed, um, taking into account that there's economic challenges, but that's just one factor? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that has surprised us, and we've just written about it, is the resiliency of, of corporate America. Uh, coming into this earnings season, folks, we always look back, obviously, but we look for the guidance of what companies are telling us. And we've had a host of positive surprises and in different sectors, not just in big tech, which has come out and surprised us with, with positive guidance and solid numbers. 
but we've had it in um, what we call consumer discretionary uh, and, and consumer staples. So we've looked at, you know, Chipotle, for example. We looked at um, McDonald's, all of our favorites, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, all telling us we had to raise prices, yes, but consumers are paying for it. Uh, Procter & Gamble, I, look, I haven't gone off brand yet, but they came out and said, Quincy, thank you very much. You've been buying that Tide free. I'm not alone in that. Uh, they've raised their prices, but we're still there. But the point here is across the board, yes, we've had some companies telling us that they're worried, but overall, the reporting has been stronger than expectations. Now, do we think we are headed into a recession? We think we could have a mild recession, but that's part of the that's part of the of the economy's writing itself. It's part of the market writing itself, coming into, as you mentioned, valuations. Uh, what valuations are? They're a picture of all of the headwinds that a market has to face, but also all of the tailwinds and bringing it in, digesting all of it and coming up with a number that represents, that's in concert with what companies are going to have to face, the good and the bad. So this is all important and we're in that transition period right now. And this is why the market is trying to figure out should we just abandon the defensive side of the equation and just go all cyclical or should we have a mix well the way we look at it is have good companies have companies with strong balance sheets companies that can get through any environment but companies that have a good share of what they sell in other words as they like to say a moat around them they enjoy uh, the, the they enjoy their their primacy, if you will, in in their space in 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 their particular space. Those are the companies what we're looking at right now. These are the companies we want. And let's also remember that the fixed income market has become an important part of the portfolio now. Something we haven't had in years as rates have gone up. The uh, fixed income market, the treasury market, corporate bonds have become an important um, component of our portfolios. We're so grateful for that because now there's another choice. We can balance the portfolio with fixed income. Yeah, that's right. That's been a challenge, uh, you know, especially yeah. last year where you had equities and, you know, the fixed income market declining. It's probably one of the most challenging year for investors, whereas finally right. we have some lower risk return options. Yeah. So that's yeah. absolutely a, a great component. Um, so the, the first time I met you, I was, um, you were the keynote speaker at, when you were working with Hartford <laughs> and um, I had the opportunity to hear you speak and that's been great. But, you know, you've always had so much passion for this and I just kind of wanted to take a second to, how'd you, how'd you start on this journey? Where did that passion really start for you? Well, it, it's interesting. It came from, I started on the other side of the business. I started working in, in, in trading floor environment, and then worked in derivatives. And I only knew the what we call the institutional part of the business. That's the pension funds, for example. Uh, there, It's the bigger position. We, in that part of the business, we don't see Main Street. We know that ultimately, products and the investments are for Main Street. But I'll tell you what happened. On 9-11, I was working in New York and I had come over from the sell side just a few, few months before 9-11 to work uh, with a portfolio. It was institutional, but they held money. They managed money for pension funds. And when 9-11 hit, the managers didn't go home. The managers of the group I worked in, they stayed and they would not go home. And the reason was very simple. They said, we have an obligation, Quincy. We have an obligation to the folks whose money we're managing for their futures. This is pension money. 
we need to stay. We don't know when the markets are going to open. We have no idea when the markets are going to open. We don't know how much selling we're going to see from European insurance companies, for example, which actually were holding more equities. We, in the U.S., the insurance companies were mainly in, in um, fixed income treasuries and so on. And they said, we need to be prepared to buy what we've always wanted to buy for the portfolios, but be able to sell what we want to sell. This is an opportunity that we can't, we can't pass. And because of the unknown of when markets were going to open, we've got to stay here and prepare for it. We owe it to our holders, the, the people in these pensions. We didn't know who they were because you're managing a huge pool of money, but we knew who it was for. We're talking about firemen, policemen, teachers, religious orders, and not just in the United States. And when I heard, I'm even, as I'm talking about this, it's, it's reminding me of, of waking up to the fact that this was not just a big amount of money. It was about people. It was about people's futures. And I, it's when it hit me that, that it's Main Street when we bring it back home. It's High Street when we're talking about our, our clients in the UK. And I could go on and on. And that's when um, when I moved to the Hartford, when I saw, uh, saw you, I, it was for geographic reasons. I, I lived very far away from Wall Street. And uh, it was closer for me to get to the Hartford. But my job would be about the funds, the money that was for Main Street. And that appealed to me. And ironically, the reason I, I was at Prudential for so many years is that Prudential bought a good portion of um, the Hartford and, and I went with that group. But it, it never dawned on me when I first started on Wall Street. Isn't that amazing? You're, you're, you're trading billions of dollars, billions. You are in, working in derivatives. That doesn't sound like it belongs to anybody. And you're building uh, funds that are based on, on illiquid stocks uh, underpinned by derivatives. It doesn't sound like that belongs to any one person. Yeah, it but seems like when it hit me, it yeah. really hit me. Yeah, it seems like you're passionate about that and made, made a difference. What, what do you hope, like if you could hope that uh, you kind of leave behind, what, do you, what difference do you hope that you make? Well, I just hope that we have people in the industry who recognize their responsibilities because, you know, when people hear about financial advisors, they just think, oh, you just move money around. But what I know is that every financial advisor whom I'm close to, which is, happens to be a lot all of these years, you represent far more than just someone's portfolio. You are there as a social worker, a minister, a guidance counselor, marriage counselor, uh, everything. And you work round the clock at this. And I hope upon hope that the future, given, given you know, artificial intelligence and being able to, you know, just be online and take care of your portfolios, that, that folks understand that there are times when you need a person behind it. You need to work with a, per, a, a person. And that I just hope that the industry attracts the kind of people who understand the importance of what they're doing. Um, you know, uh, this may sound odd, but one year I actually worked with many, many years ago before I, I, I didn't, I didn't have a college degree, but for a variety of reasons, I worked with, um, the disabled, uh, disabled children, teenagers, but I, and it was in a day center. And I remember that the parents' biggest worry was what was going to happen when they were gone and the importance of portfolios for them. That hasn't gone away. And the, so the industry needs people, not just with the acumen, financial acumen to build portfolios, resilient portfolios, but also with the empathy 
that goes with it and what people's individual scenarios uh, require. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you said it earlier, but it's, it's about living with dignity, right? And, and those times where, you know, you lose a spouse or a child or, um, you know, something in life happens, you lose your job. It's how do you go live a life with dignity? And an advisor plays a, probably the most critical role at that time, but you have to have trust and you can't build trust overnight. So if you have an advisor, sooner the better. And then I think you're right, it's empathy and then that communication channel to really understand it. So sometimes we talk all about economics and that's important, yeah. but it is just yeah. a piece of kind of that bigger picture and having somebody that you trust to guide you through those times. Um, and then definitely in retirement. So you can you know, retire and live that life of dignity and, and not have to either work forever or if you're not able yeah. to work, not have enough to make it. And, and have to you know depend upon others to support you. So I, I agree with well, you. It's such a I'm passionate Mike, about it. It's a critical role I know uh, that, for society. Yeah. yeah. And like you, and I know that you understand this and you live it uh, with your clients. And that's that's my hope is that the industry has folks like you that that understand it is more than just portfolios because then I could use AI. I could use artificial intelligence, right? I could just plug it in, plug in the numbers, but, but pretty soon it will be able to do it. But it's much more than that, particularly what you've gone through the last two years with the markets. You know, human connection and empathy is hard to, hard to manufacture, even if AI can do the rest of it, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, Thank you so much. Thanks for shining a light on this and kind of helping us connect the difference between markets and the economy and, and your passion. Um, I really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for inviting us. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, all the best for a strong finish to the year. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of the Values Exchange Podcast. <laughs>